Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The confetti has settled in Mercedes-Benz Stadium, and the Patriots are once again the victors. 17 years ago, the Patriots won their first Super Bowl. The Patriots are Super Bowl champs once again. Hundreds of thousands of people are heading out of Atlanta this morning, and we're checking out the results and of this, the results of the city's long preparations for the big game. Here to break down the best moments and Maroon 5's grab bag of a halftime show, our GPB Morning Edition producer Taylor Gant and reporter Ross Terrell. How you doing? Good morning. We're doing all right. All right. Well, Taylor, I'm going to say to the victors, go the spoils and yeah. the first question. This is the Patriots' sixth Super Bowl win. Now they are tied with the Pittsburgh Steelers for the most such wins by a right. team. What does it mean for the Patriots? Well, it's funny. You know, for most teams, you know, any given Super Bowl is an incredible accomplishment. It's something that's not often celebrated by a team. But for the Patriots, they had already had five down with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick going for their sixth. You know, it almost seemed like it was old hat at this point. Um, you know, how can you be nervous for a game that you've been to so many times over the past, you know, 15, 16, 17 years? Um, so I'd, I'd have to say, you know, it doesn't do much. You know, it just it, it continues to um improve the legacy of Tom Brady and the Patriots. And I don't think that we really needed much more clarification that. Belichick, Brady, it's the best combination that's ever played in this sport. Mm, and Ross, your pregame prediction was two words, Tom Brady. <laughs> <laughs> he is the oldest quarterback in the league, also considered to be one of the best. Did he play like that last night? I think he, last night he's no longer one of the best. He is the best. Six rings, uh, most everybody quarterback. Did he play like it? Mm. Uh, not necessarily. He played better than Jared Goff, quarterback of the Rams. But, I mean, 21 of 35 in an interception, it wasn't necessarily that impressive. Yeah. Um, I think before the game, he was kind of taking in the scene. Like, this could be the last time I'm here. He says he's 0% chance he's going to retire, but right. he is 41. And in sports, you might as well be 75. Um, so he's the best, and we'll see. And it kind of reminds me of Super Bowl 50, which was a few years ago when Peyton Manning played his final game. It was the Broncos versus the Panthers. They won. He didn't throw a, a touchdown in that game either, and he retired immediately after. But as Ross said, Brady said he's going until he's 45 years old. He doesn't want to stop. <laughs> well, it, it, the other championships, there's they always come after the score was tied. Patriots trailing fourth quarter. Big tension. Not a tense game last night. No. 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 <laughs> I mean, there was a little bit at the end. You know, the Rams had a chance to at least tie it at 10. But then, you know, Goff throws an interception, uh, you know, and that basically ends the chances for the Rams at that point. How and about some props for Julian Edelman, the most valuable player? Played we'll, a great game. We'll give him his props, 10 catches. But if, if you're the NFL, in a way, you kind of have to be relieved the way the championship weekend ended with the controversial no call, uh, with billboards mm -hmm. going up saying a team got robbed. You didn't have any of that. There was no controversy here. It no. was a, a dud of a game. But the announcer jinx, I will say, is real. Um, no kicker had missed a field goal in Mercedes-Benz Stadium right. all year. That was a little bit of a shocker. First kick, it goes haywire. <laughs> didn't kill things, though. But how, how does this game stack up against the, the Rams compared to other Super Bowl wins that the Patriots have been in? I, I would say it's probably... 
their least impressive, I guess you could say, only because, you know, both offenses were so anemic. You know, it really was just a war of attrition. There was not really any sort of, you know, masterful offensive play calling there. It really was, you know, two great defenses going up against two offenses that didn't seem ready to play in that big game. Um, I don't know if Frost agrees with me or not there. I'll say this is what's interesting. As we, I think we mentioned on the show, you know, Tom Brady won his first against the Rams. Right. And at that time, it was the end of the Rams dynasty, which was known as the greatest show on turf and right. kind of the start of theirs. And I think we just saw the culmination of that. I think it kind of came full circle. Uh, this Patriots dynasty may be wrapping up, but um, the Rams, it wasn't impressive. Their defense played well, but sure. other than that, it was not impressive. So not a real redemption from the team's last year lost to the Eagles. <sighs> like I said, <laughs> I mean, they won. when you're at the top of the mountain, how far can one be redeemed? You know, it's right. just... Well, this seems to be the sort of overall, like, meh. This was the game. They won the Super Bowl again. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the same kind of feeling about the halftime show. Oof. Maroon 5 headlined the halftime show. More noted, I would say, for Adam Levine stripping off his shirt than a real dynamism of delivery. Here is a bit from the, ha- the show when Big Boy and Travis Scott, I'm going to say, woke things up. Top on my window, Big Boy making a big entrance there. Uh, one review I, I, I read, Maroon 5, a quasi-soul, quasi-rock, utterly funkless band was the main attraction, likely the third or eighth or maybe 14th choice for a headliner. Remind us of the controversy, if you would about why Maroon 5 was chosen. Yeah, I I think, uh, as we've said, the biggest thing from Atlanta's is how could you not have an Atlanta artist? Uh, And you had a little snippet, a little tease of Big Boy. (laughs) You had Gladys Knight. You had Chloe Chloe and Haley singing America the Beautiful. But what you saw, the best performances from last night weren't the teams. It wasn't Maroon 5. It was Atlanta artists on their stage. Mm. And I think you kind of proved a lot of people right about when you think of Atlanta and it's synonymous with hip-hop, the history of here, of the artists that we put out. Um, I mean, the the pregame concerts that were free in Centennial were better shows than what we saw last night at halftime. Yeah, Mm. and they they mentioned they were going to have this kind of grandiose, uh, unifying message. They alluded to it, you know, before the game. And, you know, one love was spelled out in the the sky above Mercedes-Benz Stadium. It was fine. It was kind of inoffensive. I think people can just kind of go meh, and that would sum it up pretty well. Well, fine and inoffensive seems to be the way that things were running. And the same was true for the commercials. There were no political messaging of any kind, Uh, although Adam Levine, didn't he say something like the voices are going to be heard on the field? That was the plan. Did we hear that? I think we saw it with love. I think that was an attempt. (sighs) Yeah. But it it was safe. And and one of the concerns that, uh, you know, people we've talked to have said is you can't can't really control the artist's message, and that was one of the reasons for not having them. And I think you may have overcorrected. You know, not only did you not control the message, it was kind of a lifeless performance as a whole. Yeah. And, you know, Big Boy was on for all of maybe, what, two minutes? <laughs> Blink and he was gone. You know, he looked right. right in the coach. The car was nice. But besides that, he was very, very not highlighted during that whole thing. Right. We're getting a little bit of a recap of the Super Bowl with Taylor Gant and with Ross Terrell. We uh, also are going to be hearing a little bit more of his reporting. Ross is on the on the floor and around the city of Atlanta in just a minute. But, Ross, you did lose your bet. You thought that Outkast might reunite at the Super Bowl. 
Yeah, I lost. Um, <laughs> I expected an Andre 3000 uh, cameo of some sort. Um, this I thought this would have been the perfect time to do it. You're at home. But Andre 3000 has turned down the Super Bowl in the past, citing having to conform with the NFL, having a shortened songs. Yeah. You're having a, a quicker performance. And for him, he wanted the ability to do the whole song how he wanted. Um, so with that being said, I'll pass to Taylor because I'm still a little salty. <laughs> Well, okay. How about ads? I mean, that's often the big news for the Super Bowl. People seem to shy, or advertisers, let's say, seem to shy away from anything that smacked of controversy. Right. And we, you know, we had uh, you know Stacey Abrams ad uh, that we've we talked about in the days leading up to the Super Bowl, talking about the, the need for paper ballots. But besides that, you know, Super Bowl advertising in itself seemed to take kind of a very you know, measured approach this time. There wasn't really anything that stuck out too much. Besides one ad that we you know, we talked about in Morning Edition today, uh, the Bud Light. Uh, cameo with the mountain coming in from Game of Thrones and crushing the Bud Light Night, which I don't think anybody saw coming. There was a lot of audible gasps at my Super Bowl party. Yeah, same here. And I imagine there was in others too. But uh, yeah, besides that, you know, I think a lot of ads have problems, you know, trying to get as like cool and throw in as many memes and inside jokes and like old celebrities and stuff like that. But at the end, I think if you ask a lot of people like, hey, what was that last commercial for? They'll just kind of look at you and be like, oh, I saw Terry Crews, uh, avocados maybe? You know, there's just, <laughs> it doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. You're just throwing a lot of, you know, good money after bad just trying to make that happen. I will say Georgia, in a sense, benefited with the Kia ad. That's something that caught the eye of uh, Senator Johnny Isaacson. Uh, That kind of shift to Georgia production made here, uh, new manufacturing. So that was one that Really kind of lifted the souls of a lot of people. Um, I think that one was important. And then T-Mobile. Uh, I think they kind of stole the show. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to say, as a journalist, I really appreciate the Washington Post ad. I oh, thought it was sure. terrifically done. All right, how about the afterlife of the game on social media? Reactions, memes, complaints about traffic, memes about uh, uh, Adam Levine striptease, by, for example. <laughs> My question is, how did people watch the Super Bowl without Twitter? I think Twitter really saved the night <laughs> in a lot of ways here. Um you, you talk about the memes, but just the the jokes that people kind of pumped life back into the game. Right. I think, I mean, that's really a view of how social media, you know, keeps you plugged in because without Twitter, would you have turned it off? Probably. Uh, but in order yeah. to understand what are people talking about, why is this trending? Why isn't this? Um, you got to thank Twitter for that one. This game in isolation, it was 14 punts compared to three field goals and only one touchdown. So it was borderline unwatchable in some spots. So I think, you know, even the uh, the kind of rude jokes that were <laughs> that were uh, at Atlanta sports, uh, you know, a few detractors on there saying, well, of course, you know, what do you expect? It's in Atlanta. It's not going to not going to be a lot of scoring in this one. That, yeah, that hurt a little bit personally. Uh, but besides that, you know, I have to agree with Ross. It did make the game a lot more fun. Okay, well, uh, John Nelson's coming up after this, and he wants mm-hmm. a rebuttal. He does not agree that it was a dud. He said it was a defensive masterpiece. Oh, yeah. So we'll get you go- let you guys thrash it out. <laughs> but, Ross, you were over the weekend covering Super Bowl events across the city. Now, here are two fans you spoke to, Kevin and John Hardy from Cape Cod, Cape Cod giving us a recap of their weekend. First Super Bowl, by the way. It's crazy. This city's beautiful. I mean, they had a lot going on. There was a lot to do. There wasn't a moment where I was just bored doing nothing, you know? We, were... we did the uh, the NFL experience. That was like, that was the best experience I've ever had, man. Yeah. I thought, I mean, when I came here, I didn't know what to expect. But now, uh, oh, I'll come back. I'll come back. So what did they experience? They had sounded like they had the time of their lives, and that was 
actually uh, the, the common theme that I heard. I talked to uh, some Eagles fans, Saints fans. Saints fans were here. Mm. Uh, a couple of them who are actually going to the game anyway, and they said, you know, this is still a chance to be a part of it, and we're pulling for the Patriots. But um, if you are Atlanta, if you are Mayor Bottoms, you have to thank the weather gods. We talked about the 2000 <laughs> right. Super Bowl and the ice storm that really shut down the city. We talked about the 2014 snowpocalypse and how Atlanta doesn't really do well with winter weather. We had the winter weather scare earlier this week. But, I mean, this weekend it was spring-like. It was 67 degrees. The roof was open for the pregame festivities for a flyover, and that's something the NFL wanted. Um but Atlanta really showed up, and today, Roger Goodell, in thanking the city of Atlanta, said your southern hospitality was really on display. And that's mm-hmm. something that you can attribute to the 10,000 volunteers, the host committee, just the welcoming nature of the city that they say is too busy to hate. Yes. And how about the—how uh, did Marta perform? I, uh, I think uh, our own Ross Terrell took it to <laughs> oh, great success. I, I did. I, I did take it. Um, I took it there and back. And much different than the national championship, where there yeah. were delays for hours to clear off the stations. Marta was really prepared. They had ambassadors um, at, everywhere telling you where to go. Please move down. They had officers at all stations. Um, it was really efficient. They, I think they did a, a great job of having signage showing people as soon as you leave, here's where to get there. But they did have a hiccup with the streetcar. Um, <laughs> shut down early it Sunday. It shut down early Saturday oh, and, Sunday, yeah. and on Sunday. Um, it gets stuck in traffic, and it, it was inoperable, much like these two offenses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, snap. He can't resist. Well, okay, Taylor, we got to wrap. So I just wanted to ask you, how do you think the city fared during the big event? I think it was great uh, to think how poorly things went 19 years ago. I think this this city has a very uh, long memory when it comes to that, and so does the rest of the world. So now that you get a chance to put Atlanta's best foot forward, especially on the national stage, I think that's a good thing for everybody. GPB Morning Edition producer Taylor Gant and GPB reporter Ross Terrell, thank you both so much. Thank you, Virginia. Thank you. And how else should we leave but listening to some Maroon 5, who just brought it last night. Coming up, we're going to hear about how Georgia high school and college football players played in the big game and in the NFL in general with GPB Football Fridays and Georgia podcast host John Nelson. I was so high, I did not recognize the fire burning in her eyes. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Well, the New England Patriots are again Super Bowl champions. They defeated the Los Angeles Rams last night in Atlanta. Hundreds of thousands of people traveled to and around downtown for pregame festivities, from free concerts to an NFL theme park. We just heard some of GPB's Ross Terrell's Monday morning quarterbacking. He also brought us some sounds from the weekend. This is just great weather and the city's beautiful. That's Ruben Ramos, a New England Patriots fan who traveled here from Connecticut. He sat in Centennial Olympic Park sipping a beer, enjoying the spring-like weather. The last time Ramos went to a Super Bowl was 2012. That game was in Indianapolis. He said this time around, two things caught his attention. It's a lot of Patriots fans here. I'm impressed. I mean... A lot. <laughs> I've seen a lot of Patriot fans. In Atlanta, it'd be very nice to us, even though we, you know, we beat them a couple years ago. But they've been really nice as a city, you know, to welcome us. He's referencing Super Bowl 51, when the Falcons were up 28 to three in the third quarter over the Patriots and lost in overtime. 
but that isn't the only state connection for fans. Both teams' offenses featured running backs who were stars at the University of Georgia, Todd Gurley for the Rams and Sonia Michelle for the Patriots. The last time Sonia Michelle played in Mercedes-Benz Stadium, his team lost to the Alabama Crimson Tide, but this time he left a winner and with bragging rights over his former teammate. Nine-year-old Julian Smart sported UGA gear on Saturday as he took in some of the festivities with his family. Smart said he was rooting for the West Coast team, but not because of Gurley. I'm going for the Rams because I don't like Tom Brady and how he agrees with Donald Trump. During Trump's run for office, a Make America Great Again hat was spotted in Brady's locker. The president has also called Brady a friend of his. Politics and sports continue to collide a few miles away at Piedmont Park in Midtown, where hundreds of people gathered for an anti-Confederate monument rally. Richard Rose, president of Atlanta's NAACP branch, said while the Super Bowl is a worldwide event, the conversation on social injustice must continue here after the game ends. The world is here in Atlanta, looking at Atlanta, and we want to take this opportunity to talk about what Georgia really is instead of Atlanta. Georgia is home to the largest shrine of white supremacy. Rose Mint Stone Mountain, where three Confederate generals are carved into the exposed granite. A white supremacist gathering had been scheduled there on Saturday, but it never received a permit and the park opted to close for the day. Members of Atlanta anti-fascists held a victory rally where they burned a Klansman effigy. Politics aside, there was still a game to be played, and that's what brought throngs of people to Atlanta. Megan Hartigan, a Patriots fan from New Jersey, said she enjoyed Atlanta even though the game was a dud. So fun. I mean, the energy is ridiculous, and the game was boring until the fourth quarter. <laughs> John Hardy lives in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, but went to the game with his brother. He says after this trip, he'd definitely come back. It's crazy. This city's beautiful. I mean, they had a lot going on. There was a lot to do. There wasn't a moment where I was just bored doing nothing, you know? This weekend helped erase some of the bad memories from the last time the Super Bowl was played here back in 2000. Atlanta was hit with two ice storms, and two men were stabbed to death the night after the game. But this morning, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell had nothing but praise for Atlanta. I think our fans enjoyed the experience which is ultimately the most important. I know our clubs did, so thank you to uh, the Atlanta contingent for the uh, incredible work. And now all eyes shift to Miami as next year's game will be played in South Beach, a game that most Atlantans hope the Falcons will be playing in. For GPB News, I'm Ross Terrell in Atlanta. That was GPB's Ross Terrell, and you can check out more of his reporting on Super Bowl events from the weekend at gpbnews.org. And that Super Bowl that Ross just told us about was the lowest scoring in NFL history. So the game may have been a bigger win for college and high school football programs here in Georgia. It was a mini reunion for two players who bleed red and black, as we heard. Todd Gurley plays for the Los Angeles Rams and Sony Michelle plays for the Patriots, both former Georgia Bulldogs. And John Nelson hosts the Football Fridays in Georgia podcast here to tell us how they got their start and how they got to Super Bowl 53. But but also filling us in on some other Georgians who left it all in the field at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. John, welcome. Ross and Taylor. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> you, you can get your See, in. I almost, okay, no, actually, here, let, let's start here. What, this will be the last prop bet of the Roman numeral classic weekend. Number of points scored by New England or the length of this segment, which is more? 
Uh, that's going to be the that's going to be your last prop bet for the weekend. Is it? See, that's that's what we're going to be paying attention to for the rest of the segment. So. Well, you said that they were in control. You were in the control room. Yes. Uh, oh, I keeping almost, yourself char- from charging I almost in. charged into this room when they started talking about things. Oh, so before we get to the question about Georgia players, here's your chance. Refute uh-huh. the argument from Ross and Taylor. Okay. I said defensive masterpiece. And I think that really it comes down to what you like as a football fan. Do you like to see 43-40, which a lot of folks do these days because they like to do like to be entertained with what's going on in front of them? Or if you like pitchers' duels in baseball, I know that some folks are like that. You know, if you like to see how a Greg Maddox used to to work on the mound or something like that, to see something like a 13-3, I think that you look at what the defensive coordinator, Brian Flores, what Bill Belichick did for New England and what Wade Phillips did for the Rams, I thought it was great game planning to keep the strengths of each team's away from each other. And, yeah, it was 3-3 after 3, and that was another one. No Super Bowl uh, touchdowns, 500-to-1-odd payout in Vegas. And I bet you the guy who put, you know, 20 bucks down after three quarters is sitting there thinking, yeah, I've got it, I've got it, and then Sony Michelle scores, and then it's just like. (laughs) (laughs) So not great for the betters. Great for, let's say, the long view? Is that what you mean? Well, I think that if you you look at things uh, this way when it comes to you're looking at the long view for the NFL. I think that what you've seen is in Bill Belichick, one of the greatest coaches that the NFL's ever had, and taking a team that was porous defensively at points and figuring out a way to keep the high-powered Los Angeles Rams offense from scoring. And then what you do is you see the strengths. For the Rams, the strengths are Jared Goff, the passing game, being in rhythm, making sure that Todd Gurley is going to get his yards, whatever. The Patriots found a way to take that away, blitzing from all uh, all corners and figuring out how to have more of them going up against uh, blockers against Jared Goff. And then for the Rams, you take away what Tom Brady's strength is, but then they figured out a couple of things. Josh McDaniels made the adjustments. Belichick admitted as much where you get you knew that Gronkowski was going to get his. You knew Julian Edelman, who was having a great day. He was, Amazing game. And so he was getting everything early. And by the way, my MVP selection before the game started, Julian Edelman, thank you, I'm a genius, but... It's figuring out the adjustments that you need to do in-game. And those defensive coordinators cause the questions for those guys. And Ross and Taylor are, let's say, half right. Let's put it that way. Okay, so I'll let you carry on the rest of that argument in the newsroom and on Twitter. How's that? Okay. But now I want to get get to some of these Georgia players who participated. Todd Gurley, you mentioned. Sonny Michelle, star running backs at UGA. Any highlights of their respective college careers, let's say, come to mind? Well, obviously, you talk about Sony and him losing a national championship in the same building about uh, about 13 months previous. And he was asked about it after the game, and he really didn't dwell on it all that much. He's, uh, he's, if I'm remembering the, the interview correctly and how he phrased it, he said, be where your feet are. And so he was very present tense in making sure that it's like, I'm here, I'm here to do this job, I'm here in this moment, and I did what I was supposed to do, and it showed up with a touchdown in the fourth quarter. Todd Gurley, 2017 NFL Offensive Player of the Year, last summer signed a four-year, $60 million contract extension mm-hmm. with the Rams. How has his pro career been going? Uh, been going great, except for the the knee injury that happened late in the regular season. He had uh, 10 carries, 35 yards. He was active in the first play on offense for the Rams, and then pretty much it was left to C.J. Anderson. I know that Sean McVay, the head coach of the Rams, said that 
he it was his fault for not integrating Gurley into the offense as much as he should have. Hmm. But I think that there's more there to that late season injury than everybody's letting on. Uh, I know that the Rams aren't going to say anything, and I know that Sean's not going to tell me anything, but I think that there was more of that late-season injury. Well, we want to get to McVay in a minute because of his Georgia roots. But first, let's talk about the the little rivalry between the two of them, uh, Gurley and Michelle. Here's a little bit of the back-and-forth in press conferences leading up to the Super Bowl. Here's Todd Gurley. I helped recruit him at Chubb. I'm the reason him and Chubb got to Georgia. Y'all should be thanking me. Hopefully everything I taught him, he don't do it. So, And he just played like he used to play before I taught him everything. <laughs> and here's Sony Michelle, as you mentioned, scored the only touchdown, talking about his relationship with Todd Gurley at UGA and at the Super Bowl. Yeah, you know, he was just behind our back 100%, just telling us to keep working, go out there and play our hearts out. And this year, I'm just excited for him. I'm excited to see him go out there and be able to play some ball. You know, he's been working probably his whole life for this opportunity. What will you say to him after you win? Let me get that jersey. <laughs> there you go. All right, so Todd Gurley playfully taking credit for Sony Michelle's skills. Sony Michelle also acknowledged how much Gurley supported him. Their first Super Bowl, both of them. Mm-hmm. How did they play yesterday? You mentioned Michelle. And yeah, Sony Michelle had, I want to say, close to 90 yards in the touchdown. Todd Gurley, his touches were limited, 10 carries, 35 yards. And so a big cog in the Rams' offense was held in check. And by the way, updating social media, it looks like Gant has sent me an Emmanuel Macron gift <laughs> when it comes to our argument from the first block of the show. So you're going to have a good handshake, a good long handshake? Maybe? Oh, yeah, it's going to be a good long handshake. We're going to sit there and figure out who has the tightest grip and who hangs out the longest. Let's hear just a highlight. This is when Sony Michelle scored again, the only touchdown of the entire Super Bowl. First play in the red zone. The first one for the game on either side from the two. First and goal. Running it for the touchdown. Sony Michelle. So the Georgia Bulldogs, well represented in this Atlanta Super Bowl. Uh-huh. Here is Todd Gurley talking about the program at UGA. I mean, it speaks for itself. You know, we got got guys all around this league and, you know, great players. So, um, you know, Georgia's done a – I mean, obviously, not Georgia, it's us, but, you know, they've done a great job of, of helping us get to the league. So a little bit of mixed praise there. Well, the Georgia Bulldogs uh, had to practice over at Georgia Tech. And Bill Belichick was asked about it, about the, the Bulldogs having to practice over on uh, North Avenue. He said, uh, yeah, they'll, they'll get over it. That's my best Bill Belichick. I could do this early in the morning. <laughs> yeah, they'll get over it. I think it. you were a little too emphatic kind of for Bill uh, yeah, Belichick. Yeah, too many exclamation perhaps. points. I mean, yeah, they'll get over it. Well, beyond Gurley and Michelle, there's also David Andrews, Rameek Wilson, Isaiah Wynn, Wynn, who's currently injured. What is it that makes UGA, Georgia, such a powerhouse when it comes to producing NFL-caliber players like Gurley, Michelle, and Wynn? Well, you look at what Georgia has been able to do traditionally, and the Southeastern Conference has always been one of those conferences in college football that has produced the largest number of athletes that are ready-made for the National Football League. And you look at Georgia Tech with Shaq Mason, the athletic, the uh, AC is another part of that. And then you have other programs within the state of Georgia that are that are building, too. You get a guy like Ulrich John, who went to Bradwell Institute down on the coast, and he was on the injured list for the Patriots, didn't get to play in the, the Roman numeral classic. But 
He was a part of the Georgia State program, which is now developing too. So you have, you've got Georgia, you've got Georgia Tech, you've got Georgia State, and the Southeast is that one of those big hubs for student athletes to get to out of high school and get to college and then get to college and be ready made for pros. I mean, you look at a guy like David Andrews who went to the Wesleyan school here in Atlanta, and he's been Tom Brady's center and one of the offensive captains for the last three years now. So, Ulrich John, I want to pick up on that. Currently on the injured reserve on the Patriots side, got a very early start playing high school football in Hinesville, Georgia. Played for Georgia State before mm-hmm. going to the Patriots. Give us a little bit more of his story. Well, you think about the way things are with high school athletics these days. And really, when you look at a place like Hinesville and Bradwell Institute and how a coach like Matt Lazat has been able to build things there the last couple of years, but when you have an athlete like, say, a Warren McClendon, who's just down the coast in Brunswick, you have an, an Ulrich John, size doesn't lie. And coaches are always looking for those athletes that can do things very well, very nimbly, And regardless of where you are these days, you will be found. And so you could be in Hinesville. You could be a Trent Brown who is at Westover in Albany, who ends up going to Georgia Military and the University of Florida. So you're looking at, let me see if I can do this right. Okay. Atlanta, Albany, Carrollton, uh, Ufoma Kamala was at Stars Mill. You had uh, Ulrich John at Bradwell. You had Gerald Everett at Columbia. and Jonathan Jones at Carrollton? Yeah. Yeah, Jonathan Jones and Carrollton. So you have Albany, Carrollton, Atlanta, Hinesville, and DeKalb County. So you have all these different pockets in the state of Georgia that were represented last night one way or the other or in the the regular season. And Georgia was the fourth, if my memory is right with math, and there's no math. Math for me early in the morning is tough. Uh, I want to say that Georgia was the fourth highest represented state when it came to the rosters here in in, uh, Super Bowl 53. So you watch this. You watch these programs Uh bubble up. You watch how they function. Why do you think Georgia has it? I think they've always had it. And you look at you look at how things have grown and you have programs like Valdosta, like Fitzgerald, like Colquitt County. Uh, like things are in Columbus and Savannah and Lincoln County in, in Lincolnton out by Augusta. And it's the fact that they've been there so long. You're talking programs that are almost 100 years old and some who are more than 100 years old now. And it's those traditions that have been there, the programs and the towns, and they wrap themselves around these athletes and around these programs, and they represent and they make sure that their students and their student athletes are taken care of well and they know where they're coming from. And it's just really the the love, if you want to call it that, that these teams in these towns have for each other that's mutually inclusive. And to see them on the big stage like this, it's the town's always going to be there for you. I mean, you look at a guy like Cam Jordan for the Saints, who is from Moultrie. You know that Moultrie is always going to be there. You know that everybody's going to be calling, making sure that you're okay, even though you're far away from home. And it's just that that love that's there that you get growing up. It's there in high school. High school never leaves you. Well, that's a kind of, it's a beautiful picture. Yes. But given that there the injuries in sports and given that the controversies with the NFL, do you see any of these programs pulling back? Define, define pulling back for me. I mean, you, you have programs, that, I think that with coaching, I think that if you look at it this way, with 
coaching and taking care of the student-athlete. I think that that's going to be key because I think if you look at, say, what USA Football is doing with the Heads Up initiative, making sure that you're, you're leading with things other than your head when you're tackling and you have things like role tackling like you see in Seattle that Pete Carroll instituted, taking care of the student, taking care of the student-athlete so they have longer lives, even if it's not just in football, to make sure that they're still walking when they're 35 and 38 as opposed mm-hmm. to just, you know, not being able to function as an athlete. All right, we got to wrap, but we mentioned Sean McVeigh, an al- alumni of uh, Marist School. The Marist School. Yep, just 33, became the youngest coach in NFL history at, in 2017. Quickly, tell us about his time at Marist. Oh, one of the coldest championship games I ever covered. December 19th, 2003 at Marist, and they were going up against Statesboro, and I remember that one. That was the last championship that Marist actually had was back in 2003, and you knew that he was an absolute genius, photographic memory, amazing dude. John Nelson, host of GPB's Football Fridays and Georgia podcast. John, where can we find you to, uh, you know, have a little debate on Twitter? At OSG Nelson on Twitter. And if you took the over for this segment versus Patriots points, you won. <laughs> John, thanks so much. Anytime. This is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to hear from David Harris. He's a Georgia native who collaborated with the R&B artist Her, who has five Grammy nominations for her self-titled album, including Best New Artist and Album of the Year. So be sure to join us here on GBB, or you can catch the On Second Thought podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Author Snowden Wright is no stranger to a good Southern epic. His new book, American Pop, chronicles the fizzy and flat years of a cola empire and the Forster family who built that dynasty. The novel pours out American cultural and economic history and wrestles with the way that nostalgia colors and sometimes covers reality. American Pop is coming out tomorrow, and Snowden Wright joins me in the studio. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. We meet the Forster family at a New Year's Eve gala. This is at the dawn of 1940, when one of the siblings looks out over the balcony, the Peabody Hotel in Memphis, and all the revelers, and is moved, thinking they all look so happy. Are they? Not at all. Uh, <laughs> Not even a, a little. It's meant to be an ironic uh, assessment and that he just misreads the entire situation. All the uh, the main childrens of the family are dealing with their own dilemmas, dramas, and plights in their own way. Uh, one of the characters is suicidal. Another just received divorce papers from her husband. A third just had a very uh, degrading sexual experience. And so they're all de- dealing with the burden of their name and the burden of their family prominence as that is coupled with these personal traumas they're going through. Yeah, uh, the family, uh, as as is written in the book, they're nouveau riche who are no longer riche. (laughs) So they're having some struggles. But tell us about a little bit of background on this whole cola dynasty. Why that particular product? Why did that inspire the novel? The idea for to make in a novel about cola struck me because cola seems to be a quintessential American product. It is to America what tea is to England, wine to France, or beer to Germany. And so when I was trying to think of a vehicle by which to explore the past hundred years of American cultural history, I love the idea of soda as being both 
a Southern drink and an American drink. It's very popular down here. It was started here in Atlanta. And yet it is a quintessential American drink. There was this quote by Andy Warhol about Coca-Cola and how it's so democratic and that you know that the president and Liz Taylor both drink it. Mm. And how did you form this interconnected dynasty of characters? Were any particular characters come to you first? There were the idea of the novel came to me first, the idea of a soda, soda dynasty. And then I had the very daunting task of creating at least 12 characters, all these characters within this family. And that made me want to curl up into a corner because <laughs> I had no idea how to do that. And then I remembered my multiplication tables. In second grade, when we were taught our multiplication tables, 0 to 12, I came up with a strange mnemonic device whereby every number between 0 and 12, I gave a personality and a place within a larger family. And when they would multiply, the product looked like this anecdote to my little 12-year-old mind. And every time they'll multiply, that would play out in my head. And it even kept playing out in my head up until a few years ago, whenever I calculated a tip at a restaurant. Mm. And so I realized that I had my characters right there, and I'd had them there since second grade. And all I had to do was transpose the numbers into the novel. Huh, so there are multiple generations here. There's Tewksbury, Forster, uh, plucky son of a, a of a druggist, I guess, of a pharmacist mm -hmm. who develops this formula. His uh, son who marries and they have, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six kids or four kids um, and their progeny after that. So many generations and many callbacks from one to the next. It's like it's like they're the, the memory of the older dynasty makers haunts the rest of the of the children through the years. I absolutely correct. And I really wanted to make that emblematic and representational of the South. What is one of the most defining characteristics of Southern fiction and just Southern culture? It is the constant reckoning with our past and how the past is constantly bubbling up into our present. And we're having to deal with the Civil War and slavery and so much more and deal with it in whatever way we can. And I wanted to embody that idea with the family where the past keeps bubbling up into the present with them. Mm -hmm. Bubbling up. See what you did there. There you go. <laughs> Uh, but you, there's also in the, their tents, you know, right now, the Forsters, like most Southern families, you write, typically had one of two intentions when conversing among themselves, to make each other laugh or to make each other bleed. <laughs> Where did this come from? I love getting a bit aphoristic about the South and the Southern culture, and I love getting anthropological. And that line comes from my own family. I just know how we interact and we're a very loving family, but when people encounter us and hear how we talk, they can misconstrue our good-natured jibes as a the opposite of love, and they don't realize how, how it was meant to be endearing, and that's what bonds us together. And that really was something I wanted to explore in the novel, to make 
this family be a family that is very loving, but it also is very cutting with each other and they can hurt each other without uh, giving it a second thought. Do you but, think there's more there's more honesty and frankness in that in some kind of way? I mean, it's it's the opposite of the New England waspy family that never really say anything to each other, at least our image of that. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. The family, they are their own their own thing. They they live by their own rules and they're allowed to do that because of their social prominence, because of their wealth, because of their political aspirations and how they are put on this national national stage and given the spotlight of celebrity. They were the celebrities of their day. They were the Kennedys or Rockefellers or Hearst. Mm. Well, let's talk about your family because you moved from New York City back to the family farm in Mississippi to write the novel. What, what inspired that change of scenery? I had been living in New York for about a decade and I realized it was going to take forever to finish this novel. And then, sadly, my grandfather passed away, leaving me a small inheritance. And so I decided to honor his memory and his generosity by using that inheritance to quit my day job, move to Mississippi, and work on American Pop full time. And when I was there, I primarily lived in Oxford, Mississippi, but I also spent a lot of time on my family's farm in Yazoo County. And on that farm, we had this old camp house. It's, uh, it's an old shotgun cottage, and this was not a nice place. And the story goes that when my father first purchased it, he had it shipped on the back of a truck from some other farm and put on his. And he was so proud of it because he was in his mid-20s. This was the first home he had ever purchased. And so because he was so proud, he immediately drove 20 miles down the road to pick up his mama and show her this new purchase he'd made as a young man. So he gets her in the car and says, Mom, I want to show this something to you. The thing to keep in mind about his mother, my grandmother, is that she was this old Mississippi blue blood. She has since lost all her wealth, as American families are wont to do, but she still had that bearing about her. So my dad pulls up in front of the camp house, opens her door for her, and says, Look at this, Mother. This is my house. I own this. This is, this is mine. And his mother looks at it, takes a long drag of her cigarette, and goes, Charles, and our family, we burn houses nicer than this. <laughs> <laughs> and that story really gave me the first idea of the fluid nature of wealth and class in America. And I think I expanded on that in American Pop and how, to quote Nathaniel Hawthorne, families are always rising and falling in America. Yeah, and the, actually, the the wife of Tewksbury Forster, Fiona Forster, is one of those blue bloods who marries down, as they say. Mm-hmm. So there's always this kind of tentativeness about who are we? we? We've we've made all this money, but what we don't really deserve to be in these ranks. What do you think is at play for these characters? I think the fact that where they're from and that they are nouveau riche is a constant struggle, uh, is a constant dilemma for them, internal and external. And so they're constantly trying to show that they deserve their place in American history and amongst families like the Kennedys and the Rockefellers, both of whom were at one point nouveau riche as well. Mm. 
Snowden Wright is my guest. We're talking about his book, American Pop, a very well-anticipated Southern novel. And we're talking about the the family, the Forster family, who run a soda dynasty. It's Panola Cola is the name of the cola. And the the Forsters are chronicled as if they're a real American dynasty. Uh, There's a character who has an affair with Josephine Baker, for example. Uh, There are newspaper clippings and interviews, almost like a documentary talking head style. So what did this, this style, what did that entry point help you? How did that help you tell their story? I had the idea from that style from Truman Capote's quote-unquote nonfiction novel in Cold Blood. I wanted to make American Pop the opposite of that. I wanted to make it fictional nonfiction. And to do so, I used certain techniques of nonfiction, bringing in exegetic source material, interviews and quotes, specific dates and times, and also real figures like Josephine Baker. And the ultimate goal with that was to create a very a stronger sense of verisimilitude, where because you have these real events and these real people combined with these fictional people, subconsciously I wanted the reader to feel that this really happened. I wanted to breach that boundary between fiction and nonfiction and make them truly believe in the world of the foresters. Mm. And there, but there's also a fiction and nonfiction that operates for them. There is what they present to the outside world, what everybody saw at the Peabody Hotel in their, you know, gold lame gowns and long cigarette holders. And then there's something else that is going on inside of the family. Uh, so are you playing with that idea of what is real, what is not real? Absolutely. And that kind of goes into the very notion of nostalgia, how it's a story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And so the Foresters have that story that they tell themselves about themselves and the story, the facade that they present to the world. And I really wanted to investigate the advantages and disadvantages of nostalgia. A lot of times is a disadvantage in that it makes us misremember certain aspects of the past and how it really wasn't that great. And then in another way, it can make us not want to look, not want to focus on the present as much. We want, well, on the present as much. We want to live in that utopia, that nostalgic utopia of the past rather than move forward. Is that as American as soda pop? I, w- I would say Yes. Uh, You look at Soda Pop and you look at uh, the idea of America. America is very focused on nostalgia, especially at this point in time. The way things used to go. Would you read some of the novel for us? I'd love to. Okay. So this is Snowden Wright. His book is American Pop. The novel is coming out tomorrow. He's going to read a little bit for us. Um, set, Set up the scene for us, would you? Okay. So this chapter, this is the opening of a chapter later in the novel, and it involves Imogene Forrester, who is a part of the fourth generation of Foresters, and her grandfather, Houghton Forrester, who invented and founded the Panola Cola Company, has just passed away. Years later, a Harper's, Mag- a Harper's Magazine review of her famous autobiogra- autobiography would describe Imogene Forrester as fearless and indomitable. But on May 8, 1856, she lay in the bathtub on the second floor of her family home, crying into lukewarm water, 
afraid to get out because she had no idea what to say in the eulogy for her grandfather, Houghton Forrester. The funeral schedule for that afternoon. Following the death of Imogene's father when she was 10, Houghton had raised her as if she were his own daughter rather than his granddaughter, acting the part of a much younger man. He took her for piggyback rides and taught her how to play catch. He helped her with homework and never missed a single recital. In those years, he often said one important thing to her. Can't never could. Whenever Imogene felt helpless, saying she just couldn't reach the jar of preserves on the shelf, or she just couldn't make it to the end of the driveway in time to catch the bus, or she just couldn't go to the school dance with the other kids, her father would respond with those three words, can't never could. Now, soon to graduate at the top of her class from Radcliffe, Imogene knew she had her grandfather to thank for everything she'd managed to accomplish in her life, which made her fear about giving his eulogy all the worse. She unplugged the bath, waiting for, waited for the water to drain, grabbed the pulley above her head, and, lifting herself in one smooth motion, sat down in her wheelchair. Now, Imogene has polio and is living life in a wheelchair, but that... That message from her grandfather, you must persevere, you must roll on. What does that say both about the American character and, do you think, the Southern character? I think it says a lot about both. And I think it says a lot about this particular character. She's put into, she faces hardships both because of her infirmity, but also because of her gender. What the time that this is taking place is uh, controversial for her to take on the family company. And yet she is such a strong person that she does not let that deter her. And so she exceeds even when the odds are against her and she fights for her right to run the company. And I think her attitude and the way she goes about claiming her birthright is uh, a lesson that a lot of uh, America in the South could learn from. Author Snowden Wright, his second novel, American Pop, is on sale tomorrow. He's going to be at the Buckhead Barnes & Noble shop on Saturday reading and talking about his book. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Now I should clarify that Saturday, February 16th for his Atlanta book launch. There's more information at our website, gpbnews.org. And that's all that we have time for today. On Second Thought is produced by Elena Rivera, Leighton Raul, LaRaven Taylor, and Amelia Brock. Alex Word is our engineer, Amy Kiley, our senior producer. We'll be back tomorrow with more on Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Thank you.